If you have a situation where there is almost certainly going to be some CGT, then there ought to be a conversation about whether you wait for your consent order. Hi everybody and welcome to the second season of the Resolution Podcast presented by myself, Simon Blaine and Anita Mater from Four Paper Buildings. As you'll know, if you listen to the first series, the point of these podcasts is to drill down into some depth about interesting topical topics in family law. That's what we plan to do in the second season. We're going to be kicking off today with an episode looking at the imminent changes to the treatment of capital gains tax for divorcing and separating couples. Today we're joined by Rebecca Fisher. She's a partner at Russell Cook. Rebecca advises families, family offices and individuals on all aspects of private client law, including wills and estate planning. She regularly advises entrepreneurs, business owners and multi-generational family businesses on succession planning, with particular focus on inheritance tax and helpfully capital gains tax planning. She also has considerable experience advising family lawyers and their clients on the tax implications of separation and divorce. And most importantly, she's a member of Resolutions, Pensions, Tax and Financial Remedy Committee. Thank you for joining us today, Rebecca. I'm obviously super excited because we sit on the committee together and you have always promised me that one day you can make CGT and tax interesting So today is the day when you're hopefully going to do that for us. That is quite a bold promise that I made. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So if we could start with the basics, we're obviously recording this in the summer. Hopefully it'll be produced sometime in the autumn. But what is the current CGT liability that's in place when the family home has to be sold after parties divorce? So... For CGT, it's very different to the other taxes because actually you have to look at the date in which parties separate. And for all other taxes, you look at the date of decree absolute. So that's the first difference and why people need to think about it early on. Very broadly, if parties separate, they have in the tax year of separation, the ability to transfer assets between them on something called a no gain no loss basis what does no gain no loss mean it effectively means that when you transfer it there's no charge to capital gains tax at that point but you acquire it and have a base cost at the value at which the original person purchased the property perfect example let's do a share portfolio rather than a than a house husband has a share portfolio with a base cost of 100,000 Date of separation, transfers it to wife, it's worth 500,000 and wife sells it later on at a million. Her base cost is 100,000. So that's what we mean by no gain, no loss. Really, you're kicking the tax can down the road later date. So that effectively means that, that parties don't have to fund CGT in the tax year of separation. Okay. But of course, most couples 
don't sort out their finances in the tax year of separation. And if they end up separating very late on in a tax year, it's almost impossible. So there's this real arbitrary date of the tax year for when you can get your affairs in order. But going back to the family home, I think many people would think that there's no way they could pay any capital gains tax in relation to their main property. But actually, that is not the case. So there is a relief called principal private residence relief, which means very broadly, if you've occupied a property as your main home, then you get a relief for the period in which you've occupied it. So if you've always lived in the property, you'll get relief for the entire period of occupation. Plus, you get something called a final period exemption, which is now nine months. And this is quite relevant for divorce because historically... It was 36 months, three years. Then it reduced to 18 months and now nine months. Now, why is that relevant to divorcing couples? Well, if you have a situation with husband and wife where husband moved out of the property and they sorted out their finances in, within three years when it used to be 36 months, it was unlikely there was going to be a CGT charge in relation to the main home if they'd always lived there. But now that's come all the way down to nine months. I would be surprised if many couples sort out their finances within nine months. So you're already in the territory that just by virtue of one of the parties moving out of the family home, they could end up with a tax charge. So that's why family homes can result in a liability to CGT purely because on breakdown of the relationship, one party tends to move out. So I think that's relevant. It's also worth noting that there are different rates of capital gains tax. So for higher rate taxpayers on property land, it's 28%. And for all other assets, so shares, sales of a business, it's 20%. And there are various reliefs. But that really is the crux of the issue for most family practitioners and CGT is really around the family home where people fall into traps of having to pay tax, which they didn't think they were have to, going to have to pay. I've always been confused, Rebecca, about what exactly was trying to be achieved, first of all, by the tax year of separation rules and then by the sort of nine month exemption for the family home or for the reduction to nine months. So what is it that they think people are up to that they're, <laughs> they're trying to close off as a loophole? Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't actually know what the history is in relation to the idea of the tax year of separation. That I don't know, and it's worth exploring. Put simply about the final period of exemption for principal private residence, that goes back to flipping second homes. And that was really about trying to reduce the amount of tax-free period that people have when they have a combination of residences. And I just think the reality is that's had a knock-on effect for divorcing couples because of the legislation. That wasn't the primary objective. The objective was to reduce this tax-free period that people have on a property. Because once you can claim principal private residence relief, you automatically get the, the final period exemption. So if you think about it, you could have bought one property, lived in it for one year, but actually you get four years of tax-free occupation. Then you buy another property, you live there for a year. So you can see how that was quite advantageous. And the way in which they came to nine months was their view was that generally most people can buy and sell a property within nine months. That was probably pre-pandemic, I have to say. <laughs> 
So the reason you're here now is obviously because of the finance bill. And we've just had the draft produced, which mm. I understand you didn't read on your holiday, um, <laughs> but read immediately on your uh, return to work. Um, what, what changes will the bill introduce? Well, they're, they're fairly sweeping and substantive, I think, for, for family lawyers. The first is that they're is no longer going to be any CGT on disposal of assets between spouses if there is effectively a consent or a court order between those that divorcing couple. So that is a significant change. Tax year of separation has gone for couples that are divorcing. I should say it does also extend to annulment and judicial separation. For those couples that separate but do not divorce, then there is three years in which to transfer assets. So CGT still hooks on to some degree tax year of separation, but that three year period is only relevant to those people who do not ultimately get an order in relation to their divorce. And then there are some some broader provisions in relation to the family home. And that's really about deferred payments, chargebacks and measures. Under the old rules, I say old, obviously they're still current, but let's for these purposes call them the old rules. Under the old rules, someone would have, if husband lived in a property, moves out, he can claim principal private residence for a period of occupation and nine months. But that relief could be extended if husband transferred his interest to wife and it became wife's main residence. So let's say husband moves out under the terms of the consent order four years later, transfers interest to wife at that point. It is possible for husband in those circumstances to elect for that to be his main residence throughout that period where they're not in he's not in occupation and therefore there is no CGT however under that rule husband firstly has to make an election so we're already in the realms of having to get professional advice and dealing with HMRC and secondly husband needs careful tax advice because husband may have another property So if husband elected for former matrimonial home to have principal private residence relief for four years, that is at the expense of another property in ownership. So it's a balancing act. So that was the old rule. The new rule says, well, clearly you don't need that exemption anymore because you get PPR, whatever happens when transferring in connection with an order. So they've tweaked it to say you can still make that election if you sell to a third party. So in our example of husband and wife, former matrimonial home, husband moves out, wife is in occupation, they don't sort out their finances, and then there's a sale of the property four years later to a third party. Husband can elect to treat that as his main residence, and there's no requirement to transfer his interest to wife, it's just a sale on the open market to a third party. So it extends that former relief. And if that situation occurs, husbands or wife in that situation would still need tax advice 
because it's a balancing act whether they make the election or not. So that's one of the changes. And then the other change is about the chargeback. And so those are situations, aren't they, where one party remains in the former matrimonial home for a period of time, usually, I think, because it may be waiting for children to cease full-time education. And then the property is sold and a percentage goes back to the party that's moved out. Now, historically, those have created real difficulties for a, from a CGT perspective, because when you have an interest which is directly related to a percentage interest in a property, that isn't treated as cash, it's treated as an interest in property and therefore CGT applies. So where you have a situation where one party to the marriage has moved out and there's a significant period of time before that property is sold and let's say they get 20% of the sale proceeds, they are going to effectively have CGT on 20% of the increase in value. So that can lead to quite a significant tax charge. So again, there are new rules to relieve no gain, no loss treatment when that chargeback is, is settled. So in summary, pretty much, you are in a situation where there should be no IHT liability on the transfer of assets on divorce, no immediate CGT liability. Where you have either measures or chargeback situations, your clients might still need some advice, but very broadly, there is greater relief than there is at present. So those are the main changes. But the big change really is that there is effectively the tax year of separation has gone and assets can be transferred on a no gain, no loss basis if in connection with a divorce and there is an agreement or order. So it sounds like a rare piece of legislation that is actually genuinely beneficial for a lot of separating couples. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it actually went a lot further than the Office of the Tax Simplification had suggested. They'd said that it was quite right to extend the window. One year was punitive. They had suggested two. And the government have removed that, that requirement for a window altogether. So I think it really does benefit clients because it means for many, they aren't trying to rush through a deal they aren't in a position where tax is ruling the day. They're not scrabbling around to find funds to pay tax because actually now, if you dispose of an interest in a residential property, you have to pay the tax within 60 days. So the clients then have to fund the money, find the money to pay the tax. So I think this brings some equality to parties because previously I think clients who negotiated their way through this were those clients who could afford professional advisors and can seek the advice. Uh, and more often than not, it wasn't just those parties that were caught by these difficult CGT rules. So I think it has brought much more equality for families at a really, really difficult time. I mean, let's face it, the last thing clients want to be faced with is CGT calculations and how they're going to fund tax when they're working out is there enough to go around and family and childcare arrangements? So I think it is a real welcome change for both clients and practitioners, I think. In the new rules, is there anything we should be aware of in respect of assets that aren't the, aren't the family home? Yeah, I think 
the thing that you need to bear in mind is that when we talk about assets being transferred on a no gain, no loss basis, that does not mean that CGT is removed altogether. You're postponing it. So that is very relevant to clients about future capital and future tax cost. And I go back to that example of the share portfolio or a second property. Second home is a good example. You've got a, an investment property and that's transferred during the course of the divorce proceedings. Let's say in that case, it's transferred to husband. It was wife's and that wife acquired that property for, let's say, half a million. At the date that husband acquires it, it's one million and then husband sells it at two, well, husband's got a 28% tax charge on one and a half million. And that's based on the, ta the rate of tax at the date of disposal. Now, at the moment, it's 20% on things other than property and land and 28 for real property. It's not inconceivable that rates would increase to 40%. I mean, if you go back a few years, capital gains tax rates were often the same as income tax. So we've actually had quite low capital gains tax rates. I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did. I'd be a very popular tax lawyer if I did. But there has been a lot of chitter chatter about that increasing. And who knows, with increasing calls for revenue in the government for various reasons, that may be one which, which is something that happens. And so therefore, I think for family practitioners, really the flag is, you, even though you know your clients are going to have to fund CGT now, you need to put it in your overall asset and liability schedule for the future because it is a future expense. Yes, I think um, we were just chatting, weren't we, before we started recording and Simon and I were saying how, how usually we would just net off the CGT on our asset schedules and obviously we've got to net it off on the on the prevailing rates yeah uh, but I guess your warning to us is that the prevailing rate it, it may be something totally different when it actually in reality has to be paid in a few years time yeah I mean I, I think it's to some degree it's an almost impossible situation for advisors because equally you don't know the extent to which portfolios are going to go up or down or property prices are going to go up or or down. I think you can just do the best that you can do for the clients in those circumstances, knowing what the asset base is, and a flag to say, you might run a couple of calculations, might you? you might run them on 20%, and you might run them on 40. And that difference, does it have a huge impact on the clients? Some clients, it won't, some it will. And I think that's the best that you can do in the circumstance, because you simply don't know what that, those assets are going to look like in the future. And I think that's probably something that family practitioners must always grapple with in terms of transferring assets if they are likely to go up or down in value. So, Rebecca, the draft legislation that I've seen talks about the fact that assets can be transferred between separated spouses on a no gain, no loss basis within an unlimited time frame, so long as that is subject to a formal divorce agreement or a court order. Mm. What, has, has there been any discussion of what a divorce agreement is? Is it only a court order? No, it isn't. And in fact, the, 
it's all the definition of agreement and order is already defined in the existing capital gains tax legislation. And there are two elements. The first is that it stipulates that it is an agreement between an individual and their spouse or civil partner, which is made in contemplation of or in connection with divorce, annulment, judicial separation or separation order in such circumstances that that separation is likely to be permanent. Now, I have to say, I'm not sure what form that agreement would take if it wasn't a consent order or a court order. Um, I certainly haven't. I mean, clearly, I'm a private client lawyer, but when dealing with my family colleagues, I certainly haven't come across a situation where financial arrangements are made which aren't embodied in a consent order. I suppose that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And I think Anita and I were just chatting prior to the to um, the podcast starting about what that could look like. And so I don't think that there's when we're talking about an agreement, it's specifying a particular form. I would have thought you'd want something that is signed by both parties, produced by solicitors rather than a kind of use the old vernacular back of a fag packet. But yeah, I I think that my my view would be that those agreements are probably unlikely. For most, it's going to be embodied in a consent or court order, which is specifically referred to in the legislation. And it goes broader than that and refers also to orders made in connection with the Matrimonial Causes Act. And I'd have a look at those. And some of those are in relation to periodical payments and other financial orders. I mean, I don't know from your perspective, from either one of you, whether you come across agreements that aren't embodied in a consent order. Does that happen in practice, Mark? Yeah, as you were speaking uh and this is slightly off piece, but the only thing that occurred to me is is a prenuptial agreement is, in effect, a, an agreement made in contemplation of divorce. It's an agreement that only comes into effect if there is a divorce, but that might be one to have a think about. It's yeah. really unlikely that that could be what they conceive, but... Yeah, I suppose it's the stretch to which you say made in contemplation of divorce. I mean, clearly it is on one level, but I think... I don't know it from a tax perspective whether that that would be accepted, although to be very frank with you, I'm not sure to what extent HMRC have ever had any appetite for getting involved in tax disputes as a result of divorce. I mean, it's a bit like whether couples are living together in the date of separation. I don't think I've seen any cases about the date of separation. One thing that it did occur to me is the extent to which a variation of an order may be covered and I think there's an argument to say that it may well do because I think that it's caught by that definition so let's say you've got a couple that have divorced and got an order pre-6th of April 2023 and there is a subsequent variation in exchange of assets I I think there's an argument to say that no gain no loss treatment may be extended because it is in order in connection with the divorce and dissolution of the marriage so I think that throws some interesting because that is something that would simply never have been caught previously. And in fact, SDLT is very is probably the broadest definition, which is any agreement in connection with divorce. So that would cover variations that wouldn't work from an inheritance tax perspective because that stops at the decree absolute. But I think the extension of the, the CGT rules could well be covered by this, I think, on a variation. 
the other thing that puzzled me is is whether these agreements can be retrospective. So in other words, if you have a couple who separated a good while ago but haven't finalised um, a consent order, are they and and who transferred assets between them in in that period? Are they, are they now able to sort of retrospectively? fix those transfers at no loss, no gain through making an order now? No, I don't think so. I think the transfers have to take place after 6th of April. So I it's think. not the agreement that has to be after 6th of April, it's the transfers. Well, I th- <sighs> I think, I mean, I, I personally think probably it is to do with, it's difficult. My inclination is, that the the transfers probably have to take place after 6th of April because if you're transferring now the current rules apply the legislation isn't in place so I can't see what there is to relieve that so I think probably the approach would be and, and what practitioners need to have conversation with their clients about is that if you have a situation where there is almost certainly going to be some CGT then there ought to be a conversation about whether you wait for your consent order. Now, for some couples, the prospect of that will be just horrific and they just want to get the deal done. But where there is significant tax costs, I think that there is a real case to say you may want your order and do the transfers post 6th of April 2023. Now, we've only got a draft finance bill but I think the likelihood of it substantively changing is fairly remote. I mean, you've still got to flag that with clients, of course, but practically speaking, I would be surprised if this changes in any significant way. So I think that's the key key point, that if you've got clients that haven't undertaken any transfers at this stage, do they wait or not? I mean, that's that's going to be a really key point for all of our members, isn't it? Because if you're looking at CGT bills of sizable sums, uh, anything between now and April, like you say, unless there's an emotional need to to get it done, you know, it's it's almost as if we should all be waiting the, the you know the six months now. I would have thought. Except all, all we're doing is extending the period for making no loss, no gain transfers, isn't it? So it's what what you're talking about, Rebecca, is 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 the cases where where where, where there might otherwise be an immediate CGT liability yeah. because they've missed the tax year of separation. Correct. Is what Correct. I mean, I, I've got a couple of cases where people have been separated for for many years at the moment. So I, I think in in those cases, I'm inclining towards well another six months isn't going to hurt in terms of actually making an order yeah even if the agreement is reached yeah I think that's an important point actually Sam because if you have got clients who are within their tax year of separation now and they know what they want they could just go ahead and do it but that's because there's already legislation in place to to effectively deal with that but for those clients that haven't for many years I think having a transfer now and an order later on is not going to help them because the order itself won't retrospectively, the transfers have happened in this tax year. But I think it will be for orders post 6th of April and transfers. Thank you. And then could you tell us something about 
reporting requirements, as it were, in, ter- in terms of is, is, is there any requirement on lawyers to be informing HMRC in terms of these transfers, or is that entirely the client's problem at some future date? I think it's entirely um, the client's problem. I think it's the usual flag I would recommend that you say to clients you ought to seek professional tax advice if there are any transfers, um, because you may well need the tax calculations anyway, depending on what the arrangements are. When we go back to that point earlier about this latent CGT on the no gain, no loss, that they're going to be laden with some um, potential future liability. So I think that's quite important. I don't think actually that there is any requirement to notify HMRC when you're transferring on a no gain, no loss basis, much the same as if people transfer assets between them during the course of a marriage or civil partnership. There is an exception to that, and it's quite key. And that is the point I went back to about the former matrimonial home. And when one party is no longer living in that property, but wants to treat it as theirs if they're selling to a third party sometime in the future, they are required to make an election. So that's a positive step that they must take because they're deciding whether they should treat the former matrimonial home as their principal private residence and get the relief or whether it may be some other property they have. So in that situation, they positively do have to do something. Is that when they acquire the other property i mean for it's not unusual for somebody to be in rented property for a while after they've they've divorced and then perhaps they buy two or three years later is it at that point that they think well is is this new place that i bought my ppr or is it the former matrimonial home that's my ppr well i think usually you you can put the election in when you're when you're effectively I think I need to double check the legislation on that usually I think you make it at the point that you have made the disposal and say you're going to treat that and claim it because you know because also you're not going to know the difference in if for example you've got one property in central London and one out in the regions it's quite possible that the one in central London increases in value quite significantly over that time period as one outside of London so therefore, it may be obvious that you may make that decision at that point, but it's going to be a juggling act. So usually you would make the election at the point you've made the disposal and you've set and you've written and said, I'm claiming PPR. This is the disposal and I'm reporting it. But I think I would flag generally that that's something at the time that you need to advise your clients to take advice on because this isn't in final form and whether it will be tweaked about elections, whether they might change it about a combination of residences. I think that it's because these two bits about the former matrimonial home are slightly more nuanced than their blanket, no gain, no loss. So I think there might be further amendments about the process of election or a time frame. At the moment, they haven't. Um, but I think this that may be a bit more watch this space on those those sections. So obviously the ideal in these cases is for people to get advice about CGT and also to get early calculations of what CGT liabilities might look like. But there are some cases where, although there are going to be CGT liabilities, there aren't really the funds for people to to go off and start instructing experts. If parties are in that situation, what's, what's the best way for them to start 
estimating what their liability might be? Well, I think the reality is, on a very simple level, capital gains is what are you selling or transferring for and what did you acquire it for? What's that difference? And then you pay the tax on that and you have a tax-free sum each year called the annual exemption. So very broadly, you know, it's taking the current value less the acquired value and whatever the the annual allowance is in that particular year for disposal. So that's a very broad brush approach. I think the reality is if you have a situation where it's the former family home and someone's moved out and then it's going to be transferred, then probably there's going to be limited CGT risk within that unless they've got share portfolios where there are significant gains again, you're not going to be in a situation where you need to do detailed calculations. But I think it's it's just not a one-size-fits-all. And I think it's something for family practitioners and our members to be aware of that when they've got the case in front of them, they need to work out, well, where could there be? Have they, look at the fact pattern. Have they always been in occupation of this property or not? Well, if they haven't, I don't know, because they've been abroad working for three years, for example, then there are various reliefs that may be available and it becomes a bit more complex. And I think they probably it would be quite difficult for them to negotiate that on their own. But I think that would have always been the case. But on a very simple level, this stops things happening in a hurry and people making rash decisions about transferring assets because of the CGT risk and enables people to take their time and be more considered in their financial arrangements and hopefully a lot less need for professional input. I mean, I can think of quite a few situations where I'm advising clients because they've not been in occupation of the main family home for a period of time and then it's going to be sold or it's going to be transferred to a spouse four years later, for example, those situations now are covered. I mean, there is there's limited need, if any, for tax advice in that situation. But I just I think it's important that people still bear it in mind. The risk is you just think, oh, there's this new rule, which means we don't ever have to think about CGT. And that's what I would urge members to say, no, don't think that. You don't have to rush in the tax year of separation, but do still think overall, what's the likely arrangement going to be? Do we need advice on this or not? And hopefully in most cases, you won't, but do still consider it. Hopefully it just doesn't produce the same cold sweat moments that it does now on the 4th of April, <laughs> a day to go. Thank you. Um, I think we said at the beginning, it sounds like a rare instance of a piece of legislation that's actually genuinely helpful for for our clients. Is it something that resolution played a part in? Should we be blowing our trumpets collectively or your trumpet specifically? I think I think we should, actually, because both the um, Pensions, Tax and Financial Remedies Committee and resolution made representations to the Office of the Tax Simplification when they were they were asking for written evidence about various aspects of the tax regime. It wasn't just CGT and divorce, but that was one element. 
And really what was put forward was exactly what we've discussed today, that it's arbitrary in terms of the tax year of separation. It doesn't operate in a way that any of the other taxes do. So it's an anomaly and it catches far too many people that it shouldn't. And it creates inequality, quite frankly. And the result of that was that the OTS made the recommendation that it should be two years post-separation. And the government, to everyone's surprise, has gone much further. So I think it really is, um, it's not often I get to say this in relation to tax, but one way you can do a mini fist pump and say this is a really good result for clients and families, because it's always seemed to me completely at odds to something it, which is a hugely stressful and emotive time to throw in the mix the risk of tax or having to to instruct tax professionals is just absolutely bonkers and the last thing people want to consider let alone then actually having to fund the tax while still trying to meet each other's needs so I think it is a result for resolution and, and, and for family law in general, actually. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's really, really interesting. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>